juxtaposition between those two songs we just sang. The first, it is finished upon that cross. Joy, celebration, he is risen so that we might be free. And then, Lord, from sorrows deep I call. And I love how it illustrates that Christianity is not a faith that doesn't live in the real world. This is a faith that understands the, the heights of joy and the depths of sorrow. Perhaps like some of you have experienced this weekend with daylight savings time. Some of you accidentally showed up for Sunday school because you forgot to set your clocks back. That was joy for us and perhaps sorrow for you. Um, somebody told me earlier this morning that since technically... What time is it? It's 10.55. Technically, it's 9.55, so we can actually make this a pretty long service if we want to. Uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us. If, you're, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew 26, beginning in verse 69. Our scripture reading will be verses 69 of 26 to verse 10 of chapter 27, if you don't have a Bible, you'll find one near the seats underneath you, somewhere around there. Uh, and we invite you to take that as our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. You can just turn to page 990, and you should find it there. So Matthew 26, beginning verse 69, and we come here upon a text that is filled with deep sorrow, and yet can also lead to deep and great joy. So hear the word of God beginning in verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed. And Peter Remembering the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with him the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, 
And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father, we thank you for your word. And as we come across this morning a troubling passage, a passage that exposes the sinfulness of even your deepest and closest disciples. Lord, we pray that you would use your word to convict us of sin. We pray that you would use your word to work in us a true and lasting godly sorrow over our sin that would lead to genuine repentance. Lord, we pray that you would do this so that we would not merely feel bad, but so that we would truly repent. Lord, if there are some in this room that have never repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus, we pray that today would be the day that they do that, that you give them the gift of repentance. And for your people, may you expose to us the ways that we have fallen short of the glory of God And may we cry out to you and be restored today. Father, we don't just pray for our church. We pray for our kingdom partners. Today we pray for Luke and Emily in Turkey. God, we praise you for the good progress that they've had in learning language over the past few weeks since they returned. And we pray that that progress would continue. We pray for them as they begin this project to translate Christianity explained into Turkish. We pray, Father, that you would use their efforts to bring about a resource that would be a gift to the Turkish church so that more and more men and women, boys and girls, might hear and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for Luke and Emily and their willingness to spearhead this effort. Father, our hearts are saddened to hear the the news that they've shared with some of us over the past few days that the prospect of remaining in Turkey long-term is becoming even more and more doubtful. Father, you know all the details. You know what's going on in the Turkish government. You know the reasons why they're denying visas. You know the, the massive amount of money that Luke and Emily would have to raise to be able to remain. And Lord, that is not too hard for you. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. The silver is yours. The gold is yours. The hearts of kings are like streams, in the wa- streams of water, and you can turn them any way that you will. And so we pray that you would move so that they might stay. God, you only know the depths of the pain that they have endured as a couple that's willing to go to the ends of the earth to take the gospel only to be turned away from one place after another. So, Father, we pray that you would protect them from discouragement. We pray, Father, that if they have to return home, that you would help us as their sending church to care for them well, to die to ourselves so that we might serve them, to love them, to help them, to encourage them to pray for them. Father, we don't just pray for our brothers and sisters. We pray for our country, and we pray for the elections that will be happening on Tuesday of this week. 
Well, there's so many things that we could ask for, so many things that we could pray for with these elections. But Father, just to, to boil it down to one deep prayer on many of our hearts, we ask that you would allow men and women to be elected across our country and in our state that would labor to end or limit abortion. God, we view this as one of the darkest and most destructive evils in human history. An injustice among the, the most vulnerable human beings. An injustice that is on the most massive of scales, bigger than the Holocaust. Only heaven knows how many lives have been snuffed out deliberately in the wombs of their mothers. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us as a nation for this evil, for this monstrosity. And we pray, Father, that you would bring about a genuine change in our culture. May our minds change about this issue. May our hearts change. And Father, we pray that the laws would change so that every human being, regardless of size, regardless of skin color, regardless of sex, regardless of anything, would be treated with dignity and respect because they're made in the image of God. Oh, Lord, as we think about election day, we pray that you would also protect your people from putting our hope in elections. God, we are so easily distracted by small things, so quick to forget that it is finished on that cross. So may we not lose heart, regardless of what we, the outcomes might be on Tuesday. May we not be overly excited if it swings our way, or overly discouraged if it doesn't, because we know how the story ends. May we rejoice that our names are written in the book of life. And Father, we don't just pray for our country. We pray for the world. Today we pray for the nation of Netherlands and for Prime Minister Mark Rutte. And we pray that he would lead in such a way that there would be justice for the vulnerable, sanctity of life for the unborn, and human flourishing for all the citizens of Netherlands. God, this country was once a major hub of the Protestant Reformation. It was a, a bastion for true and healthy local churches. And now today, less than 10% of the population attends church, church weekly. And many of those churches teach false gospels. So God, we pray with broken hearts for the people of the Netherlands. We pray, Father, that you would send laborers into the harvest. We pray that you would raise up local churches that are healthy and faithful and fruitful. And now, Lord, we pray once again for this church. Father, we pray that you would speak to us in this moment. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would preach louder than I can preach and do what I cannot do and speak to the heart. May I rightly divide the word of truth this morning. And may you use it to cut our souls open so that we can stand before you in repentance, rest restored to a right relationship with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Not all tears are created equal. In his book, Finally Free, a biblical counselor named Dr. Heath Lambert tells a powerful story about two men named Ryan and Dave. 
Ryan was weeping when he first met Dr. Lambert. Ryan and his wife, Lisa, had been married for 15 years, had three kids, and yet their marriage was on the brink of collapse. For 15 years, Ryan had been enslaved to pornography, and his wife had had enough. So Ryan sobbed in Dr. Lambert's office as he begged and pleaded with his wife to forgive him. Dave's story was eerily similar. He'd been married to Marie for 20 years, was enslaved by the same sin. When Dave was caught, he too wept. In Dr. Lambert's office, he was literally on his knees, crying at his wife's feet in what looked like total brokenness. These, these two men had a lot in common. Both had serious problems. Both were family men with a wife and children. Both men's marriages were in crisis. Both men were desperate. Both men cried and pleaded for reconciliation. But as similar as those two men looked, underneath the surface, Ryan and Dave were radically different. Only one man was restored to his wife and children. The other man ended up divorced, and now is legally no longer able to be in the same room as his children. What's the difference between Ryan and Dave? In his book, Dr. Lambert wrote this. One of them was interested in real change on that day. The other was not. Which one do you think changed? It's hard to tell, isn't it? Both men were heartbroken. Both men were sincere. Both displayed an apparent commitment to their family. Both appeared willing to do whatever it took to change their sinful lifestyle. In spite of their outward similarities, these two men are as different as cats and dogs. Though they both displayed sorrow, their tears were drawn from two totally different wells. I think a similar dynamic is at play in our text this morning in Matthew 26. If you're new with us this morning, I would encourage you to open that Bible back up to Matthew 26, 69, and you'll find it helpful to be able to follow along as we go through the text together. Let me just remind you of the context of where we are in the account of Jesus' life. It's early, early before dawn, Friday morning the very day that Jesus will be crucified. We saw him get arrested last week in Matthew's gospel. We saw him put on a phony trial before the religious leaders. But as Matthew continues to tell us what happened that fateful morning, he shifts the camera angle, as it were, from Jesus and what he's enduring to what's happening with two of his disciples. And in some ways, these two men are a lot like Ryan and Dave. Both Peter and Judas were disciples of Jesus. Both of them had been with Jesus for three years. Both of them, this very morning, are caught in shameful, serious sin. Both of them wept over their sin. And yet, these two men's tears were not equal. 
because the tears that they wept were drawn from two totally different wells. One of these men will eventually be restored to Jesus. The other man will be totally and forever separated from Jesus and his people. The contrast between Peter and Judas reminds me of a contrast made by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Joey referenced this earlier. It says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Dear dear brother, sister, friend, it, it is possible to feel really, really bad about your sin and yet not truly repent. The big idea that I hope to explain to you from our text this morning is that we must labor for the godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That's what we want. And I think that we can see that as we examine our text together. I want to show you with God's help three steps towards godly sorrow that will make up the outline for today's sermon. Before we begin, let me just challenge you and remind you Please, when you listen to sermons, not just at PBC, anywhere will you ever hear a sermon, don't listen to a sermon as a spectator, but as a participant. Here's what I mean. Don't merely listen, pray as you listen. God, would you speak to me as I hear? God, would you show me what I need to see here? And and, and as you participate, you're participating, asking God to work in your heart and bring real and lasting change in your life. For some of you, perhaps that means turning from your sins and putting your faith in Jesus for the very first time. For others, it means restoring that relationship by turning away from a sin you've been clinging to. Whatever it is, I would plead with you, brother, sister, friend, be a participant as you hear the Word of God preached this morning. So let's begin three steps towards godly sorrow. Number one, if we're going to cultivate godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to real and lasting change, we must do something that's quite hard. We must look honestly at our sin. Look honestly at your sin. I think if we examine the many sins of Peter in our text we'll be able to look in the mirror and see some of our own. Peter's failure, if you've been following the story with us, actually began a lot earlier than our text this morning. You remember, as Jesus is celebrating the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he tells them, all of you will fall away from me this night. And in Matthew 26, verse 33, Peter says, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Let me just challenge you, Christian. Be careful using the word never when you're talking to Jesus. Peter's first sin was, of course, the sin of pride. Jesus had warned Peter, this is what's going to happen, but Peter refused to believe Jesus. I wonder how often we are just like Peter, thinking that this time it's going to be different. I can watch that movie or that show without being tempted to lust. I can get close to that guy or that girl without being tempted to enter into a sinful relationship. I can have just another two or three drinks. It won't be a big deal. 
I don't really need to open up with anybody about that sin. On and on we go, convincing ourselves that we're fine when we're really not. Dear brother, sister, friend, rather than assuming that everything is okay, I think we ought to learn to assume that we're in a lot more danger than we think. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Sin of pride is the sin that fails to see the danger, the spiritual danger that I'm in, perhaps this very moment. Peter's pride, of course, led to the sin of prayerlessness. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus three times encourages Peter to pray. Isn't it interesting that then Peter will three times deny Jesus? But three times, Peter is invited to watch and pray. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Peter, the way to resist the temptation to fall away is through prayer. And yet, Peter was sleepy. Peter didn't really feel like he needed to pray because Peter didn't really feel like he was in any danger. I wonder, what does our prayer life say about the danger that we think that we're in? Does our prayer life, does your prayer life, does my prayer life reflect an awareness that we wrestle against spiritual forces, against an enemy who wants to sift us like wheat? Is it evident in our prayer life? Peter's prayerlessness led to the sin of cowardice. Now, he doesn't seem like a coward at first, does he? If you were with us last week, We watched as Peter is the only one of the disciples to draw a sword and try to cut somebody's head off. He's trying to do exactly what he said he would. He said, Jesus, I'm going to die for you. And here Peter is swinging a sword, ready to fight to the death for Jesus. But then Jesus tells him to put away his sword. And that's when Peter's cowardice becomes visible. Peter seemed bold when he's holding a sword, But when the sword gets put away, Peter doesn't look quite as bold anymore. We see that beginning in verse 69 in our text. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Now, Peter is probably sitting within earshot of Jesus's trial. He wants to see what's going to happen So he comes close. Credit Peter for that, right? Everybody else ran away. Peter is at least close. He wants to see what's going to happen. And a servant girl comes up to Peter. Maybe she recognizes him. And she says, hey, you were with Jesus, weren't you? Now, the word that Matthew uses for servant girl suggests that this is probably a girl about 10 to 15 years old. Okay, so think a girl about the ages of of Zoe or Emma or Bonnie, a little girl, and she comes up to Peter, and she says, you're with Jesus. Where's Peter's courage in this moment? What does he do? He says, I don't know what you mean. Perhaps not exactly the lie. He pretends like 
he doesn't know what she's talking about. A 17th century pastor named Matthew Henry said that this is a species of lying which we are more prone to than any other because in this, a man is not easily disproved. How often do you lie by pretending you don't know what people are talking about? You realize that's a sin against a holy God. Husbands, I wonder how often we pretend we don't hear our wives or we can't understand what she meant. Children, how often do you pretend you don't hear mom and dad when they call your name? It's the same lie that Peter is committing right here. Same sin. I think it's interesting as well that Peter was prepared to fight with a sword against the enemies of Jesus. But once he puts his sword away, his courage is gone. I think there's a lesson for us. I think there are some Christians who are ready to fight the big battles against Jesus or for, for Jesus. I'm going I'm to fight for the deity of Jesus. I'm going to resist cultural Marxism. I'm going to withstand government persecution. And then you fail to notice the small little temptation that's coming around and you're not ready to fight. Something small. Rebellious child, an unexpected medical diagnosis, a flirtatious friend on social media, or one more event on an already full calendar that keeps you from faithfully gathering with God's people. Oh, you're ready to resist cultural Marxism, and yet you fall prey to a hundred tiny temptations, just like Peter. John MacArthur helpfully wrote this. A person's involuntary response to the unexpected is a more reliable indicator of his character than his planned reaction to a situation he anticipates. It is when we are caught off guard that our true character is most likely to show itself. So let me ask you, Christian, what do you learn about your character when you're caught off guard by trials and temptations? If you're interested in how I'm doing here, just ask me what happened to the soup in my car the other day this week. And there's a true story behind that that I would love to talk to you about and show you pictures. It was quite remarkable. And I did not pass the test. How are we doing when we're caught off guard? Peter's cowardice in the courtyard led to his sin of lying. After his first encounter with a servant girl, Peter decides to withdraw a little bit. Maybe he's trying to get to a darker place of the courtyard, a little bit further from the fire. Maybe he won't be seen. Maybe he won't be recognized. But Peter was wrong. Look at verse 71. When he went out to the entrance, another serving girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Now, now this time, the servant girl this is a different servant girl, and she kind of takes the accusation to the next level. She's not so much talking to Peter as to the crowd of people around Peter. She doesn't say to Peter, you were with Jesus. She says to everybody, this guy was with Jesus. As she ratchets up the accusation, Peter ratchets up the denial. This time, The first time, he said, I don't know what you're talking about. The second time, he says, I don't know who you're talking about. In addition, he swears an oath, as God as my witness, I don't know who you're talking about. In Peter's failure, I think we see something about the nature of lying, don't we? 
One lie often leads to another lie, often leading to another lie, to another lie, to another lie. And then we're trapped. Peter's trapped. And his sin of lying led to the sin of blasphemy. The crowd leaves Peter alone for a bit, but eventually, as Peter talks, somebody begins to put two and two together. Peter and Jesus were both from Galilee, which was a region at the northern extreme of the land of Israel. Uh, Sometimes it was called Galilee of the Gentiles because it was so close to the Gentile border that the people in Galilee, they sounded like Gentiles and often looked like Gentiles. They were northerners. In our parlance, we would say they were Yankees. I remember the first time I talked to Arthur Johnson, I thought his name was Alpha. You hear somebody, talk to somebody with a different accent, you're like, you're not from around here, are you? And so too, Peter is there near the entrance to the courtyard, and they say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. You're one of those Yankees from Galilee. I can tell by your accent. Notice how Peter responds. Look at beginning of verse 73. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you're too one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. When it says that Peter swore and cursed, don't think about foul language or profanity. What Peter is doing is far worse. The best I can explain it is Peter is basically saying, May God damn me and strike me dead if what I'm speaking is anything but the truth. That's the type of cursing and swearing that he's doing. Let God strike me down now if I'm telling a lie. Many of us would shudder at the thought of this sort of statement. But again, doesn't this illustrate what sin does? Again, Matthew Henry says something helpful. He says, the way of sin is downhill. There's a popular apologist and preacher who used to say, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That statement is true. It's evident, evidently true all over the scriptures, but the sad and ironic reality is the man that spoke such true words was enslaved by the very sins he was preaching against. So let me ask you, what about you? Are you willing to take a long and a hard look at your sin? Are you willing to look at it honestly? If you're a Christian, are you willing to go to brothers and sisters in your church family and say, will you help me to see my sin? Because I know I've got blind spots and I'm not seeing it. Are you willing to do those things? Listen, I think for some of us, this means we have to stop blaming our circumstances. We have to stop blaming our upbringing. We have to stop blaming our parents We have to stop blaming our personality. This is just how I am. No, it's sin. We need to stop blaming a medical or a psychological condition. 
We must learn to look in the mirror and honestly evaluate our sin so that we might confess it before the Lord. The sad reality is, Peter didn't humble himself and do this until the Lord humiliated him. If we will not humble ourselves before the Lord, we will be humiliated by the Lord. And that's what happens next in verse 74. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter remembered, here's the rooster crow, and he remembers what Jesus had said just a few hours earlier. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, Peter. We don't know for sure if this is true. It's not in the Bible, but church tradition tells us that Peter never heard a rooster crow again without breaking down in tears. Weeping is certainly the right response to our sin. When you see the holiness of God and the sinfulness of your sin, it's appropriate at times to be moved to tears over the gap between the two. But let me, let me tell you, please hear me, feeling bad about your sin is not enough. It's possible to weep over your sin and not truly repent. If we're going to cultivate godly sorrow that leads to repentance, we need to look honestly and humbly at our sin. But number two, we need to look away from the self. We need to look away from the self. I want to skip over verses 1 and 2 of chapter 27 for the time being and look at the second main character in our text. The first man, Peter, was caught sinning against Jesus, and he ran away weeping. The second man, Judas, was also caught sinning against Jesus, and he too will weep. But like Ryan and Dave, Peter and Judas's tears are drawn from two totally different wells. One is an example of godly sorrow leading to repentance. The other is an example of worldly sorrow. And as we examine the response of Judas, we'll see a cautionary tale about the dangers of looking to the self. So how do you know Judas looked to himself? I'll show you in a moment, but before I do, I want you to see his tears. Because at first glance, it doesn't necessarily look like Judas is weeping. Look at the first part of verse 3. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. The, the words he changed his mind in our English translation is actually one word in the original Greek. And it's not the word the New Testament uses for repentance, but it is a word that implies extreme sorrow and regret. Now, I typically to preach from the ESV, but I think in this particular instance, the ESV doesn't really give us a good sense of what Judas is going through here. Other faith, faithful translations like the NASB, the CSB, the LSB, the NKJV use the word remorse. I think perhaps the NIV best captures the idea when it says that G Judas was seized with remorse. One commentator said that he was filled with grief 
anguish and indignation at himself when reflecting upon what he had done. Now, we cannot say definitively that Judas wept, but it certainly would make sense given the word that's used to describe him changing his mind. He is feeling deep regret, deep sorrow. Perhaps if you saw Judas and Peter that Friday morning, you wouldn't be able to tell which one was truly repentant. Perhaps they wept just as as severely. But how do we know that Judas's sorrow was worldly sorrow? I think we see we see the nature of Judas's sorrow by looking at where Judas goes, what Judas says, and what Judas does. Notice first where Judas goes. There is no question that Judas feels bad for betraying Jesus. Feeling bad about your sin is a start, but it's not enough. What matters even more than feeling bad about your sin is where do you go with your feelings of sadness and shame over your sin? Where do you go with those feelings? Notice where Judas goes in verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He was seized with remorse, and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver. Where? To the chief priests and the elders. Isn't it interesting that Judas does not go to Jesus? Judas does not go to the other disciples. Judas goes to Jesus' enemies. Some have said that this, verse 3, was Judas's greatest sin. Not necessarily the fact that he betrayed Jesus, but that he rejected the mercy of Jesus. It is one thing to betray Jesus. It's another thing entirely to refuse to run to him for forgiveness. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus... This is what you're doing with your sin, whether you realize it or not. You you might feel shame. You might feel bad about certain things that you've done. But instead of going to Jesus and repenting, you're going anywhere and everywhere else to make yourself feel better. Maybe you're watching videos on TikTok and YouTube that make you feel better about yourself. Maybe you're seeing a therapist who tells you you're really not as bad as you think. Maybe you're numbing the pain with porn, with drugs, with booze, with mindless entertainment or some sort of medication. Why is it, do you think, that we are so tempted to run to anywhere and everywhere but Jesus when we sin? Here's what I, here's what I think the reason is. Because if you will run to Jesus, he will make you die. Listen to what he said to Judas and the other disciples in Matthew 16, 24 and 25. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him die to himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The reason why we don't want to run to Jesus is because we don't want to die to self. Judas did not want to be reconciled with Jesus. He just wanted to feel better. And so he ran to Jesus' enemies. 
But notice, secondly, what Judas said. Look at verse 4. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, there is a lot of good in that sentence. Judas calls Jesus innocent. That's significant because he's talking to a group of people that have just declared Jesus guilty. Nobody made Judas call Jesus innocent. He chose to. Nobody's twisting his arm. He said, this man's blood is innocent, and I betrayed that. Judas also confesses his sin. Do you see that in verse 4? He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Even Adam and Eve in the garden didn't do that. Adam pointed, this woman that you gave me, and then Eve's pointing over to the snake. Snake doesn't have any hands. He can't point anywhere. Judas is not pointing the finger. These are the guys that hired him. He could have said, look what you made me do. He doesn't do that. He says, I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. He accepts the blame. There is so much good in verse 4, but he missed it drastically. Why? Because he didn't say any of it to Jesus. You can get all of the right facts about your sin and the innocence of Jesus, and yet if you don't take it to him, it does nothing. Notice, finally, what Judas does. Verse 5, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. The Roman Catholic Church has wrongly taught that suicide is an unforgivable sin. I want you to hear me really, really carefully. Suicide is sin. It's a form of murder, violates the sixth commandment. When someone commits suicide, they're rebelling against God's sovereignty. They're choosing to take life into their own hands. They're disregarding the people that love them. But the Bible nowhere says that suicide is unforgivable. Here's the reason why Judas is unforgiven. Not because he commits suicide, but because he does not run to Jesus for forgiveness. He doesn't run to Jesus. Let me ask you, dear friend, I want you to despair over your sin. I want you to look at your sin and say, woe is me, I am in big trouble. And I want you to despair over yourself. I want you, I want you to look at all the self-help books and say, they're not going to help me at all. I want you to look at any help that points you to you and say there's no help there. I want you to despair of all of that, except I don't want you to despair of any hope completely. There is hope, but it will not be found in your sin, and it will not be found in yourself. It will only be found in Jesus. Will you look to Jesus, friend? I think if we're honest... This is a story that terrifies many of us. We see the parts in our lives are, we don't quite line up with what we're supposed to be, and we wonder, am I a Judas? Am I a Judas? If you're thinking that, dear friend, let, let me encourage you. Here's how you know 
if you're a Judas or not. Where do you run with your sin? Do you run to Jesus or away from him? Do you run to Jesus' people or away from his people? If you're running to Jesus and you're saying, I'm sorry, I did it again, I'm sorry, please help me, you are not a Judas. Judas will not turn to Jesus. But if you are turning to him and you're asking for help and you're asking for grace and you're asking for mercy and you're begging for forgiveness, you are not a Judas, dear brother, sister. You belong to Christ if you run to him with your sin. Before we move on, I want you to notice a group of men that in one sense may be even worse than Judas. Look at verses 6 through 8. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. These are the same people that said to Judas when he sought counsel, what is that to us? See to it yourself. In verse 4, look at how callous the religious leaders are. At least Judas felt sorrow over his sin. These religious leaders don't seem to feel anything at all. They're coldly arguing over what to do with the blood money. They had no problems taking the money out of the temple treasury to pay Judas to betray Jesus, but now they're concerned about putting it back in. You see the hypocrisy, you see the callousness, you see the coldness, the, the absolute destruction of their sin. Why does Matthew tell us this? I think he does it for two reasons. One, he wants us to get an unvarnished look at the kingdom of self. This is what it will get you. If you live for you, this is where it will lead. Cold, calculating, uncaring, unconcerned, unconvicted, no sorrow whatsoever about your sin or the sin of others. But this also, I think, Matthew includes this here to show us the authority of Jesus. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then what was, then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave for them the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Even when Jesus appears to be absolutely out of control, he is completely in control, accomplishing his purposes, fulfilling the scriptures. Which leads us to the final step that we must take if we're going to cultivate godly sorrow that leads to repentance. You and I must look in faith to the Savior. Sandwiched in the middle between the tale of two failures are verses 1 and 2 where we see one more portrait of Jesus taking one step closer to the cross. Look at verses 1 and 2. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. We'll examine next week Jesus' trial before Pilate. But notice, right in the middle, the contrast between Peter and Judas on the one hand and Jesus on the other. Both Peter and Judas committed sin that night. Jesus committed no sin, but he was re ready and willing to die for great sinners. 
Like Samson, Jesus could have easily broken the bonds that they tied him up with, right? It was only the bond of love and submission to his father that kept Jesus tied up and marching one step closer to the cross. Both Peter and Judas felt great sorrow over their sin. Jesus felt sorrow that night too, but not because of his own sin. He had none. He, he felt sorrow as he considered the cup of wrath that he would drink in our place. But then he looked beyond the sorrow to the joy on the other side, and he went gladly to the cross. Both Peter and Judas could have been forgiven if they would have repented. How is it that only one of them did? In Luke's gospel... We learn one other detail from Peter's denial that is not recorded in the other Gospels. In Luke chapter 22, verse 60, it says, Immediately while Peter was still speaking, this is his final denial, the rooster crowed. And here it is. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows the day, you will deny me three times. Dear brother, sister, you will not repent by looking to the self. If all you do is look within, you will never repent. You will find any and every reason to avoid repentance. And you will not repent even by looking to your sin. You might despair like Judas did. You might look to man-made religions like people do all over the world but you will not repent. Here's the only way that you'll truly repent is if you look to Jesus and listen to his word. That's what happened in Peter's life that night. Can you imagine, can you imagine the look in Jesus' eyes as Peter gave that final denial? Perhaps there's tears in Jesus' eyes. Certainly there was in Peter's. But I don't envision that look as a look of stern judgment. How could you? Jesus knew this was going to happen. I imagine that look as a look that says, don't you see, Peter? This is why I'm doing this. Peter understands, finally understands, this is why he has to die. I'm that bad. Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, I'm doing this for you. Peter was not forgiven by looking to Jesus as if it was some sort of a magical look or anything like that. Peter was forgiven because Jesus went to the cross. Peter was forgiven because Jesus saw Peter's sin, every bit of it. And Jesus died for Peter's sin, every bit of it. And Jesus rose from the dead and restored Peter. And so too, he invites every single person in this room to look to Jesus and be saved. Or if you're a follower of Jesus, like Peter was that morning, to look to Jesus and be restored you're not a Christian, you can look to Jesus by confessing your sin, professing your faith in Jesus. He really lived a sinless life. He really died a sinner's death. He really rose from the dead, putting your faith in Him. You can do that right where you are, right in your seat. 
If you're a Christian, you just need to know something. You're not always going to feel sorry for your sin. If you're a Christian, if, can we be honest here? Sometimes we enjoy our sin, don't we? It wasn't until the third denial that Peter actually began to feel sorry. That means he went pretty far into it before the sorrow began to come. So, so too with us, even as followers of Jesus, we sometimes sin and we feel nothing just like the Pharisees. But Jesus is looking for us. He's looking for his people and he's saying, look to me and be restored to me. Look to the cross and draw near to me. Would you draw near to him today? For those of you who like to know the rest of the story, Dave was the man who truly changed after that initial meeting with Dr. Lambert. Ryan would eventually return to his sin, dive headlong into deeper and darker sins, and eventually spend time in jail. Dr. Lambert concluded his story with these words. The big difference between Ryan and Dave and between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow is God. Worldly sorrow happens when you feel the sting of sin but still cherish a selfish love of sin in your heart. Godly sorrow happens when you are gripped by your sinful separation from God and desire to be restored to Him at any cost. A person full of godly sorrow is oriented toward God and has a heart and emotions that are inclined to Him. Worldly sorrow is oriented toward yourself and your love for the securities, comforts, and pleasures of the world. And then he says this, here's a challenge to each person in this room. Whether you are plagued with an absence of sorrow, like the Pharisees, or the presence of worldly sorrow, like Judas, the solution is the same. You need God's forgiving and transforming grace. Aren't you grateful for grace? Aren't you grateful that our sins are many? but his mercy is more. Would you run to him today? Would you ask forgiveness for the wrong kind of response to your sin? If you haven't felt any sorrow over it, would you say, God, I'm sorry. I'm not feeling what I should feel. Help me. Transform me. Change me. Renew me. Restore me. Would you beg God to do that in your heart as we sing? Let me remind you of one line from the song we're about to sing. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Do not wait until you're better before you come to Jesus. Come to him now. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of your beloved son. We thank you, Jesus, that for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross, despising the shame. We thank you for that look at Peter in the courtyard that night. We thank you for what it says about your love for your people. We thank you for what it says about your love for us. We thank you that even though all of them fell that night, 11 of them were restored. May that give us great hope that you know how to restore wandering Christians. May it give us great hope that you love to restore your people. And may many of us run to you and be restored to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing together? <laughs>